Uh, today we'll be looking at what the confession has to say about the incarnation of our Lord, um, the one who is um, the mediator between God and man. Um, and there are handouts there in the sound booth if anyone wants to grab one as they come in. Um, so what, what do we celebrate at Christmas? I want to start with this question. I think it's an interesting one, um, given where we are in the church year. Um, uh, the, we celebrate um, certainly the birth of our Lord, but even more than the birth of Jesus Christ, what we're celebrating is um, the incarnation of Jesus and its continuing uh, reality, the continuing incarnation um, and humanity um, of our Lord, um, that God uh, was made man in the womb of the Virgin. Um, we celebrate what John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is what John um, has to say in his prologue to his gospel in chapter 1. And that the the meaning of Christmas, so to speak. Um, and I think I want to highlight that because I think sometimes... Um, we get a little bit, um, in our larger Christ Christian world at least, um, so hyper-focused on the story of Jesus' birth, as though that was the primary thing about Christmas, um, the circumstances of the birth of our Lord, um, which, if you look at the, the Gospels, the Gospels actually don't have much to say um, about the birth of Jesus, in terms of they're very clear that it happened, that Jesus was born, and that he was born of a woman who had not known a man before, um, who was a virgin. Um, uh, they're very clear on that point, but in terms of the circumstances of our Lord's birth, um, there certainly is much less um, that the uh, gospel writers have to say about that than, for example, his death or his resurrection or uh, many other parts of his life. Uh, Mark, of course, doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus, um, doesn't record it at all. Um, uh, John doesn't record anything about Jesus' birth particularly, other than the phrase that the Word uh, would became flesh and was made man. Um, uh, Matthew uh, summarizes Jesus' birth in a span of about um, eight verses, and most of it has to do with circumstances before his birth, um, the appearance of um, the angel uh, to, to um, uh, Joseph is what takes up the majority of Matthew's record. He simply records that Mary was a virgin and that um, Joseph was assured that she had not known a man. He shouldn't divorce her, but that the baby was from the Holy Spirit. And then in one verse, he tells us that Jesus was born. Uh, Luke gives us a little more detail, but most of Luke's emphasis is on the circumstances before uh, the birth of Jesus and the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1, the appearance of Gabriel to uh, Mary in chapter 1 and the various responses to those things that take place in that chapter. Jesus' birth itself, of course, is recorded in only a few verses at the beginning of um, Luke 2. And, um, and so I just want to emphasize that, like sometimes I think um, we can have this um, very hyper-narrow focus on all the, the, the circumstances of Jesus' birth, but really with Christmas, what we're celebrating is the fact that God became man in a fundamental way, and that God, as we'll see in the confession statements, continues to be man. Um, I also, um, I wanted just to make a comment. Um, I, I Don't get me wrong, I love the hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Um, it's one of my favorite top two 
along with O Come All Ye Faithful of the Christmas carols that we sing each year, and we'll sing it a lot in coming weeks. Um, this line, though, has always bothered me a little bit. Um, Veiled in flesh, Wesley wrote, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. With that line, I mean, this is poetry, right? This is not theology, and I get that. Um, but that line, that, that verb veiled in flesh, um, that um, the incarnate one um, or the, the deity, God, the Godhead, was veiled in human flesh. For me, that word veiled has a connotation of uh, several different things. Um, one, um, a veil is not really a, um, a covering. It's something you easily take off. In fact, you don't wear it permanently. It's a, it's a thing that um, doesn't continue. Um, and also, it, it, it feels as though the, the, uh, the word veil for me talks, thinks about, you know, you're hiding something. You're hiding your face. You're hiding your true identity within something else. And I think neither of those images work very well for what we believe about the incarnation of our Lord. Um, the word became flesh, um, uh, John says, as we just read from his first chapter of his gospel, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Um, that doesn't sound like the Godhead hiding inside a human body. That sounds like um, the Godhead revealing his glory in his union with human flesh um, within a human body. And, um, and, and some of that, I think, is lost um, in that line, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And of course, um, Jesus's incarnation is not something that, um, like a veil, is worn for a temporary period of time and then lifted. It is something that he enters into and continues to reveal his glory through and in, um, even now at his Father's right hand in his incarnate and risen body. Yeah, Trey. Yes, but I would argue the problem with them not seeing him has nothing to do with his incarnate or his taking on flesh. It has to do with their sin. No, that's fine. You certainly don't have to agree with me. <laughs> I'm just giving you something to think about. But, but I want to be very, very clear. The confusion that people have about Jesus' identity in the Gospels have nothing to do with Jesus becoming man. Um, it has to do with, theologically, we would say, with their fallen sinful nature and the, the, the fact that um, their, their minds are clouded in that way. Um, so just something to think about as we sing that hymn. We'll sing it many times. I'm not, I'm not saying we, we shouldn't sing it or it's heretical or anything like that. I'm just saying something to think about. I, I was thinking this week, how would I change that? Uh, joined to flesh, the Godhead see. Um, United to flow. I don't know. I, I, there, I think there, there are some options. Um, but it is an interesting thing to think about. What's that? Flesh. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Well, we'll think about it. Yeah, it has to fit the meter. It's supposed to be one, <laughs> one syllable, which is part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. Um, so but let's, let's jump into the um, confession um, chapter um, 8 that we're in this week. Um, the first paragraph of chapter 8, um, which is titled um, Christ the Mediator, um, uh, says this, or the first paragraph says this, It pleased God in his eternal purpose 
to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Um, the confession here is, continues to build upon um, the, the argument that it's making uh, broadly about um, the character of God and the way that he works in the world, um, that his, um, all that he does is according to his eternal decree, um, we're told. And um, the incarnation of our Lord, his work on our behalf, is part of that eternal decree. It pleased God. Um, God uh, desired it. He didn't need to do it. Um, he wasn't required to do it, but it pleased him to do this. And this is, and, and the God there refers not merely to the Father, but to the triune God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, in his um, one unity, and his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, we could say the second person of the Trinity, his only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king. Um, that bifurcation of prophet, priest, and king, those three offices of our Lord, is one of the original contributions of Calvinism to um, the theological um, uh, parlance that exists in the world today, uh, 500 years later. Um, if you read Calvin's Institutes, he um, talks at length um, there about how Jesus um, fulfills these offices in his incarnation. Um, as prophet, priest, and king. He is a fulfillment of the Old Testament uh, pictures of those um, different offices um, in the scriptures. And this is something that Calvin really initiates himself, and it's been developed um, throughout the last 500 years in various ways and appears um, in brief form, just being named here in our confession, but it um, is exposited in much more detail in the larger and shorter catechisms, the way in which Jesus fulfills the offices of prophet and priest and king. Um, he's also the head and savior of his church, the heir of all things and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity, that is God, give a people to be his seed, the seed of Christ, and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Um, so um, the son who is eternally um, ordained and chosen um, for this work um, is given a reward or promised a reward by his father. Um, he is promised a people. And that's something that is worth thinking about. It should remind us of Hebrews 12, where um, the apostle says that for the joy that was set before him, um, Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame. Um, the joy that was set before our Lord was not merely the joy of um, his father's presence that he would experience in his resurrection and ascension, I mean, also was the people that he was promised, um, the treasure that he was promised um, as he obeyed, as he went through um, death, even death on a cross. Um, held out for him was this great prize. Um, Jesus, um, which is you and me, which was his bride, his church. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing to think about as you consider our Lord and his love for us. Um, Jesus also tells um, a parable about um, the devil. He says, when he's accused of being in league with Satan, he talks about how you can't enter a, a strong man's house unless you first bind him, and then once you've bound him, you can plunder 
um, his possessions and take his treasures away from him. And that parable is talking about what our Lord Jesus does in his ministry, that he is binding Satan and he is taking what Satan has stolen. Um, human beings who are under Satan's thrall, so to speak, um, Jesus is plundering um, Satan and we are the plunder um, that Jesus gathers. We are his treasure, um, the seed that he gathers for himself. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson also um, identifies um, an interesting thing here. Um, he says the divines see Jesus as the kind of central paradigm of God's sovereignty in election. Um, the, you know, we've talked about election already in the confession, and now um, very similar words are used um, that are used to describe our election. Uh, Jesus himself is chosen and ordained. And that language, of course, um, comes from, uh, among other places, Ephesians 1, uh, where we're told that um, God before all eternity has chosen us in Christ, in his beloved Son, um, that our election is in him. The divines see Jesus as the kind of central paradigm of God's sovereignty in election. The Lord Jesus, who is identified as God's begotten Son, is chosen and ordained to be the mediator between God and man. This, in many ways, is a most remarkable insight. The divines are saying that Christ is the great biblical illustration of the sovereign election of God, um, that Christ himself, and of course this is a mysterious thing because uh, Christ is God, and so he's part of the eternal decree, um, um, but also is the one who um, makes the eternal decree along with the Father and the Son in his unity, unity of their being. Any thoughts or questions on any of this before we jump into the incarnation? With incarnation, so let's keep moving. All right, paragraph two. <clears throat> um, here the divines um, take on um, that topic of the incarnation of our Lord, um, which I'll say just by way of preface, um, there are two great uh, mysteries um, upon which so much of the orthodoxy um, of the church uh, hinges upon, uh, and those are um, the nature of God's triune being, um, that he is three in one, uh, three persons, one Godhead, and that uh, the nature of the incarnation of our Lord, um, that he is uh, two persons, human and or two natures, human and divine, in one person, um, united forever. Um, this, the, those topics, if you look at church history, are the things that continue to, or that were uh, wrestled with and, and, and pushed around and, and people had different ideas and thoughts and uh, the Spirit um, in his um, uh, kindness indeed did, as Jesus promised in John 16, lead us into truth um, by giving us the counsels of the church, giving us um, uh, pastors and theologians who would wrestle with these things um, so that we would properly understand these doctrines, which are not, uh, by the way, completely spelled out in Scripture in some really explicit, easy way to understand, um, but are been derived by the Spirit working through the church, working through men, studying the Scriptures. Um, we have come to a consensus, what we call orthodoxy, on uh, positions around um, the Trinity and positions around um, the, the identity, the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ and his incarnation as well as his deity. Um, and, and, and so what the divines are doing here in this paragraph, this is one of the most 
small c Catholic paragraphs in the entirety of the confession. Um, it is the statement that's made here in the second paragraph is one um, which really any um, Christian in the world could agree upon. Um, it reflects um, what is commonly taught in the church. It marks not only the borders of reform doctrine, but um, in this case marks the borders of orthodox Christian doctrine. Um, so there are, there are different, what I'm saying is there are, other, there are some places in our confession where many Christians would disagree with us and still be Christians. Um, this is not one of those paragraphs. This is a paragraph that if you, if you, if you object in some fundamental way to what's being said here, uh, you're placing yourself outside of the historical um, Orthodox Church um, in, uh, throughout time and space. So let me read this and we'll think about it. <clears throat> the Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, and every word is very important and carefully chosen, being very and eternal God of one substance, right? think about um, uh, the Nicene Creed, and that's where that language comes from, of one substance, the same substance as the Father, <clears throat> and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature. With all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin. Being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance. So notice that repetition of the word substance, right? Um, it's the same substance as the Father, um, and yet conceived and born of the Virgin Mary and of her substance as well. So that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person. Two natures, divine and human, whole, distinct, were inseparably joined together in one person. Without conversion, composition, or confusion. Confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? I want to show you how closely this definition or this, this paragraph lines up with the definition of Chalcedon. <coughs> the definition of Chalcedon comes out of the Council of Chalcedon, uh, which occurs some hundred years or so after the Nicaea uh, Council, um, as um, now that Jesus' divinity has been established, that was the main um, thing that was at issue in the, Nice the Council of Nicaea, was the heresy of Arius, who said that Christ um, was not divine, um, only um, the Son of God, and, and, but not in a fully divine way. Um, uh, that, so, so over the next hundred years or so, much of the debate that took place was over how is it that Christ is both divine and human at the same time? And Chalcedon really um, solidifies um, Orthodox Christian teaching and by Orthodox Christian teaching, I'm not referring to the Greek or, or Russian Orthodox Church. I'm referring to um, the um, Catholic and Apostolic Church that we confess um, on the Lord's Day in our creeds um, that we participate in ourselves. The definition of Chalcedon reads this way in 451. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, 
truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body. By reasonable, they just mean like ours, like anyone's. Of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects apart from sin. As regards his Godhead begotten of the Father before the ages, but yet as regards his manhood begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary the Virgin, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures. So that language of natures there is rooted in uh, what Chalcedon says. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. And you can see the repetition of those ideas there in the confession as well. The distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and substance, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from earliest times spoke of him and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us and the creed of the fathers has handed down to us. Uh, one of the big things that was happening in the fifth century um, was what's known as Nestorianism. Um, and there's some debate over whether Nestorius really believed all the things that were attributed to him. But the view at least that was attributed to him was that he believed that Christ had two persons, a divine person and a human person um, in the one Christ. Um, and some things happened to the divine person and other things happened to the human person. And so um, what the definition of Chalcedon is doing is saying, um, no, there are two natures in Christ, divine and human, uh, joined together in the one person um, of Jesus, of Nazareth, Jesus the Christ and Lord. Um, the uh, Shorter Catechism um, gives us very, on the back page, um, summary language about this. This is a question that you can easily memorize, and it's very helpful to preserve you from heresy, which is always a good thing. Um, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man, and so was, and continueth to be, God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. And this is what we confess and believe, that God became man in the Lord Jesus um, and was and continues to be God and man together in two distinct natures, one person forever. And 37, the larger catechism says, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body and a reasonable soul. See that language even coming out of Chalcedon being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, that same language repeated, and born of her, yet without sin. Um, Donald MacLeod um, says this, I think this is a really helpful and important thing to think about. <clears throat> I don't know if some of you have seen that um, Lutheran satire video about Patrick and the Trinitarian heresies and the ways in which, um, you know, you can just Google on YouTube if you haven't seen it. Um, it's really great in terms of a teaching device. And one of the points that they're making through this kind of silly video is that every metaphor for the Trinity breaks down, right? 
Um, so you, you think about, <coughs> oh, it's like a clover leaf. Well, no, that's partialism. Oh, it's like uh, water, and, and which can be um, you know, liquid or solid or gas. And no, no, that's modalism. Um, in the same way, um, metaphors, for the metaphors for the incarnation don't really work. Um, it is unique, um, this idea that, that Christ is his two natures in one person joined together uh, without separation, but also without division um, with all these other things. Um, there was a pastor, I'm on a pastor's forum, and as often the case in December, one of the pastors is typing an email and saying, someone help me think of an illustration for the incarnation this year that will be fresh and new. And I didn't respond, but I just wanted to be like, no, don't, don't do that. You know, it, it's not, I mean, some people, people say, well, the incarnation is like, you know, if Shakespeare was writing his plays and then all of a sudden Shakespeare writes himself into the play and there he is. And you just be like, no, that's, that's docetism, right? He just, he's not really in the play, right? He just seems like he is. Um, and that's not at all what the incarnation was. Um, so there, there are, there are dangers, I think, with trying to illustrate or trying to say the incarnation of Jesus Christ is like this, or even using that word, in, you know, I'm going to incarnate the love of God and by going out to the soup kitchen or whatever. And No, that's, let's just be careful about how we use this word and how we use these things. Um, uh, uh, the, McLeod says, the union involved in the incarnation must be carefully distinguished from other unions. It must also be protected from misguided analogies. Uh, for example, the relation between the two natures and the person of Christ is entirely different from that <clears throat> between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the eternal Trinity. So it's not quite the same as God's oneness and threeness in his triune person, or his triune being, rather. This latter relationship is interpersonal, I-thou and face-to-face, -face, right? It's persons relating to one another. The human nature of Christ certainly did not stand in an I-thou relationship to his divine nature, right? So the relationship between Christ's human and divine natures is not the same as the relationship between the Father and the Son um, in the Trinity. Equally, the union between the divine and human in Christ does not correspond to that between a soul and a body in a human being, right? People will sometimes say this, well, human beings are body and soul united, so maybe that's how we should think about the unity of Christ, um, his natures and his person. <clears throat> uh, McLeod says, no. In the incarnation, the person exists before the event. So Jesus, the Lord, uh, uh, the Son of God, exists before the event and actively takes upon himself a human body and soul. And the human being, the soul, does not take a body. That is not what we believe. Um, souls don't exist apart from bodies, um, except in death, and that's an unnatural state. On the contrary, the psychic psychosomatic unity is given involuntarily from the beginning. So the joining of body and soul that happens in the creation of a human being within the womb of his mother or her mother. And the union is not between two natures, but the cogent integrated functioning of different components of the one and same nature. Um, so there's something to think about um, this idea that the incarnation is not something we want to, um, yeah, I think metaphors and, and parallels break down uh, Bavink, uh, writing um, about 100 years earlier, um, makes a similar point in his systematics. He says, How utterly the mystery of the union of the divine and human nature in Christ exceeds all our speaking and thinking of it. All comparison breaks down, for it is without equal. 
But it is, accordingly, the mystery of godliness, which angels desire to look into, and the church worshipfully adores. So our response to Christ's incarnation, just as our response to God's triune nature and being, um, is adoration, is worship, um, is astonishment. And I think certainly you see that in the Gospels. You see that in the response of the angels and of Mary and the shepherds. You see that in the words of um, the Apostle John in John chapter 1. Um, this, this adoration um, of the incarnate one. Uh, John Clark and Marcus Peter Johnson, who wrote a fine book recently called The Incarnation of God, which is a helpful resource, says, Christian orthodoxy confesses that Jesus Christ possesses two natures, a perfect divine nature and a perfect human nature. Uh, perfect not just meaning without sin, but, but whole, complete, um, uh, perfected without any lack, any, nothing is missing. The former being the same as that of God the Father and God the Spirit, the latter being the same as ours, his fellow humans. Inextricably united in Mary's womb, these two natures shall forain forever united in one person, right? The incarnation of our Lord um, does not end and will never end. It will carry on throughout eternity as the very basis of our fellowship with God forever um, in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, they write, Christ's divine and human natures are joined in hypostatic or personal union. And intrinsic, and this is a fascinating thing about the way that theology developed, especially in the Greek language. Um, they literally had to invent words to describe things that they found in the scriptures that didn't exist. Um, words like hypostatic, words like person, um, that, that became descriptive of what the Trinity and the Incarnation were. An intrinsic and concrete union as opposed to an extrinsic and abstract union one that is merely metaphorical, moral, volitional, legal, or ideational. Um, let me read these next two quotes, and then we'll, I'll take questions if there are some. Um, Gregory of Nazinius, um, who was one of the early church fathers who wrestled with um, the incarnation of our Lord in an orthodox way. Um, he has this wonderful quote that's very famous, um, and this is the context of it. If anyone has put his trust in him, that is Jesus Christ, as a man without a human mind, so there are some that were saying he didn't really have a human mind, he had a divine mind, he really is bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation, if you believe that. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. And this is the crux of the matter and the issue, that without the Lord Jesus becoming truly man, um, salvation of the human race um, is impossible. Um, we must, Christ must be made like us in every way, yet without sin, um, in order that we might um, be healed, in order that we might um, be uh, share fellowship um, with God. If only half Adam fell, then that which Christ assumes and saves may be half also. But if the whole of his, that is Adam's nature, fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, and so be saved as a whole. Let them not then begrudge us our complete salvation, or clothe the Savior only with bones and nerves and the portraiture of humanity. Right? He cannot simply appear to be human or be um, cloaked in flesh in some way. He must be flesh. He must be man in order that we ourselves uh, might uh, be delivered and saved.
Uh, Bavink reflects on these things too, and certainly he's building on Gregory's language uh, some 1,500 years later. He says, There is one mediator between God and mankind, Christ Jesus, himself human. But for that very reason, his true and complete humanity is as important as his deity. It's just as important vis-a-vis uh, -vis our salvation, that Christ is man as uh, that he is God. If even one essential constituent in the human nature of Christ is excluded from true union and communion with God, there is an element in creation that remains dualistically alongside and opposed to God. Behold, our Lord says in Revelation, our Lord Jesus, I am making all things new, right? Not some things, but all things are being made new. And he can say that because he is himself a fully man. Uh, for what is unassumable, Bavink says, is incurable. Um, unless it has been assumed and taken on by our Lord Jesus, it cannot be healed and redeemed. All right, that's a lot of info, a lot of talk there. Any thoughts or questions about what I've said regarding the incarnation of Christ before I read this fine Murray quote? James, yeah? Yeah. Um, and what does that actually mean? What is there that's unique to the human soul that he's taking on that he didn't have before as God? If it's not, if he's not making a Yeah, I think it is a fascinating thing, and, and rightly pointed out by our confession and by um, that it's there present in, in Chalcedon as well. This idea that. And in, in the incarnation, he takes upon all of what constitute or what makes up a human person, um, which is not only our flesh, of course, but also um, our soul. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I I don't know what to say about what to answer, how to answer your question about what is. I mean, what's different is that a human soul is different than the eternal spirit, God, who is eternally spirit. Um, our souls are created. Um, they're, you know, contingent upon God's um, uh, creation. Um, but they are a part of, you know, obviously if you look at Genesis 2, um, the Lord forms, God forms man, Adam, out of the dust, and he breathes the spirit into him, the life-giving spirit, um, and it's a human person at that point, um, uh, nephesh. And um, at I mean, I think in that in that moment, what's being happened is what is happening is the joining of soul and body um, in Adam, which is a picture of what happens in every human person. Um, and I, 
I think it is, you're right that it's not really talked about um, in the New Testament the same way as taking on his incarnate body. But we can also say that Jesus, part of his incarnation is taking on a human soul. Um, and it is, as we'll see in the Murray quote in a minute, is that human soul, um, when it was torn from the body, um, remained united um, to the divine nature in one person. And Christ's soul went to the Father, we believe, um, while his body um, laid in the grave. He experienced that tearing. And that's part of why it's so important. If, if death is um, primarily not just the cessation of, you know, um, our heartbeat or our brain activity, but the tearing of soul and body from one another, which is, I think, theologically what death is. That's why death is so terrible. Um, Jesus himself had to experience that in the same way that we do. Um, his soul had to be torn from his body, um, just as ours is um, when, when we die. Um, and he did. He did experience that. So his incarnation includes not only his body, but his soul, his human soul. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing to think about. All right, let me read you this Murray quote. John Murray, professor at Westminster Seminary, born in the 19th century, died in 1975. Um, he says, The incarnation, therefore, means that the Son of God took human nature and its integrity into his person, with the result that he is both divine and human, without any impairment of the fullness of either the divine or the human. Um, so something in some sense was added um, to who the second person of the Trinity was in the incarnation. He did not give up anything. Um, he um, added something. The divine is not changed into the human, not accommodated to the human, nor is the human transmuted into the divine, no conversion. Um, the divine and human do not coalesce so as to form a third, no composition. Neither are their natures mixed, no confusion. From the time of conception in the womb of the virgin and forever, the second person of the Godhead is God-man. And that language, God-man, shows up in our larger catechism in question 54, I believe, um, when it talks about the ascension of Jesus Christ. He is God-man, our larger catechism says, for us at the Father's right hand. This identity did not suffer dissolution even in death. Death meant separation of the elements of his human nature, body and soul. But as the Son of God was he, as the Son of God, was still united to the two separated elements of his human nature. He that is Christ, as respects his body, was laid in a tomb, and as respected his disembodied spirit or soul, he went to the Father. He was buried, he was raised from the dead. He was indissolubly united to the disunited elements of his human nature. He could not be separated from his body or his soul even in death, meaning his divine nature. Could not be separated from those things. When he was raised from the dead, human nature in its restored integrity to belong to his person. And was in that restored integrity, he's referring there to the rejoining of body and soul that happened in his resurrection that he manifested himself repeatedly to his disciples and to various other persons, including more than 500 at one time. It was in this human nature that he ascended to heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. It, it is as God-man he is exalted and given all authority in heaven and in earth. It is in human nature that he will return, and as God-man he will judge the world. 
The elect will be conformed to his image. How could we be conformed to the image of Christ unless Christ is truly man, body and soul? And it is as the firstborn among many brethren that he will fulfill the Father's predestinating design. The thought of ceasing to be the God-man, if at any point Jesus Christ ceases to be fully incarnate, the God-man, um, everything falls apart. Our salvation is lost. The redemption of the world is lost. Uh, we have no hope. The thought of ceasing to be the God-man is therefore alien to all that the Scripture reveals respecting his own glory and the glory of those for whose sake he became man. It is the glory of God to be made man. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for this good news of the gospel of our Lord, that he is the word become flesh. Um, not merely 2,000 years ago uh, for a short span of time, but for eternity. Indeed, Father, all our hopes of salvation and redemption um, reside in this, uh, that Christ was made man. Um, two natures, divine and human, one person forever. Give us, Father, again the faith um, to wonder at this mystery and to adore um, our incarnate Lord. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.